All right, today we're going to read uh, Galatians 4, uh, 21. We're going to go all the way through verse 31 this morning, uh, but we're going to start today by just reading verse uh, through verse 26. So if you'd follow along with me. Uh, Paul the Apostle writing to the Galatians who were struggling to um, think that the gospel of grace, the cross that we preach is enough, said to them in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, uh, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this, verse 24, may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But, verse 26, Jerusalem above is free, and she is our, speaking of the church, she is our mother. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us with this very unique passage of Scripture. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word. I believe that this passage uh, stands as an exhortation to us to reject legalism and to make sure that we're on guard against it. So Lord, I pray today that you would help us to see this passage for what it is and then to bring it home and see it applied into our lives. We ask for your help in so doing. These are kind of foreign concepts and a foreign territory based on an Old Testament story turned into an allegory. So we need your help this morning and pray that you would give it to us. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Uh, amen. Amen. Okay, at this point in uh, Galatians, Paul is wrapping up his theological defense of the gospel of grace. I've told you that Galatians divides into three very neat parts. In the first portion, Paul defends his preaching of the gospel of grace uh, and how he came up with it and how the early church affirmed it and told him, you're preaching the right message, go into all the world and declare that gospel message. In the last part of the book, uh, Paul will get into, and we'll begin this in a couple of weeks after Phil is here, uh, he gets into his ethical argument for the gospel of grace. Some people said, uh, if you preach a gospel like that, then it's bound to produce people who just do whatever they want and they sin like crazy because they just feel like they are under grace. And uh, Paul in Galatians 5 and 6 is going to show us that that's not the case at all. When the gospel electrifies a human heart, beautiful results follow. And so he's going to describe that high ethical life and how it comes to pass uh, in chapter 5 and 6. But in chapter 3 and 4, Paul is dealing with uh, his defense theologically of the gospel of grace, going back to the Old Testament scriptures to prove that the gospel of grace by faith that he had been preaching is legitimate and uh, fits within the constant method of God even all the way back into the early pages of the Old Testament era. 
Okay, so this is his kind of conclusion in his theological argument. Now, Paul begins by saying in verse 21 that he's struggling with the Galatians. You know, he sees these people, they haven't fully given in to legalism yet. They haven't fully, as Christians, said, you know, we know that we need to adopt Judaism in order to be approved by God. They hadn't fully gone there, but they were considering it. They were thinking about it. And Paul tells them again, as he'd been saying all letter, I'm shocked by you. And one of the ways he describes it in verse 21 is he says, are you hearing the law? Are you hearing what it is that you're about to put yourself under? I mean, when Jesus came along, he said things like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Gospel people are under that rest. Our burdens have rolled away. We're running in the grace of God. But these people who had experienced that, tasted that, they're now thinking about, adopting the law. And Paul is asking, do you hear the law? Do you hear the yoke that the law is going to put on you? Do you hear the miserable nature of trying to relate to God based on your standing, your effort, your doing? So to kind of prove this point or really get after them one last time, Paul does what any good pastor or Christian would do. He goes back to a story in the Bible. And uh, the story that Paul uh, alludes to here is from the early pages of the book of Genesis. Uh, it's a story from the life of Abraham, which shouldn't shock us because he'd gone all the way back to the life of Abraham to prove that God always justified people by faith, all the way back to the time where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it goes back to a story in Abraham's life. Now, let me just say, this is not, there are some stories in Abraham's life that make Abraham look real good. Uh, this is not one of those stories. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It just is very honest about its people. You know, you get the good, you get the bad, and you get the ugly. And this is part of the ugly of Abraham's life. You see, what happened in Abraham's life is that God had promised him that he would have a descendant who would eventually be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And he believed God about that, but the years ticked by and he and his wife Sarah had had no children. It was a very embarrassing thing for Abraham to experience, partly because of what his name means. His name, Abraham, means father of many nations. So anytime he rolled into a new place and people are like, hey, what's your name? He'd say, well, I'm Abraham. And they'd say, wow, you must have a really big family. And he'd have to say, well, actually, God promised me that I would, but I still don't. So I have no kids at all. And as the years tick by, uh, Sarah, his wife, concocted an idea. She said to Abraham, I think that you should impregnate our servant named Hagar, a younger woman, and the child that you have with Hagar, he will be uh, our child. He will be your child. He will be the one that God fulfills his promise through. And uh, Abraham uh, went along with this plan from uh, his wife, Sarah. Now, this was something that was culturally acceptable or accepted in their era, but it's very clear when you read the story in Genesis that God uh, saw this as an, ab ab an abhorrent thing. He didn't want Abraham to have a lapse of faith like this. I think even the story itself demonstrates that God uh, 
chooses by grace. I mean, here you have this man far from perfect, yet God was still working in his life. Now, Paul then goes on to tell them that he's going to take that story and he's going to use it as an allegory. Because what happened after, of course, Ishmael was born from uh, Hagar is that years later, God showed up again and he said, I know that you've got Ishmael, this teenager, but I'm not going to accept him. He's not the one through whom I'm going to fulfill my promise. And God announced that Abraham and his wife Sarah would have a child together and that he would be the one who would receive the promises of God. This would be a miracle. Uh, when Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 4, he says, at that point, Abraham and Sarah's bodies, this is Paul saying, he said, their bodies were as good as dead. That was kind of his New Testament commentary on their potential of having children. And so it, it would be a total miracle. Uh, Abraham didn't believe it at first. Sarah didn't believe it at first. But a year later, after God reconfirmed it's going to happen through Sarah, uh, miracle baby Isaac was born. And it's at that point where in verse 24, Paul says, I'm going to take this story of these two sons of Abraham, and I'm going to use the story allegorically. Now, Now, when Paul says that in verse 24, he's not introducing like a new way to interpret the Bible that you and I are at liberty to use. Uh, he's not saying, you know, there's a straightforward, what did it mean to the original hearer's meaning? And then there's also just like, whatever you want it to say, whatever, however you want to use it as an allegory. It's kind of his way of saying, I'm going to use the story of Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac as an illustration of what is happening right now today. This is important to remember because in his illustration, Hagar and Ishmael are not going to look good. But when you read the story in the Old Testament, Hagar and Ishmael are honored by God, they're protected by God, they're loved by God in the actual story. It's in the illustration uh, where they are on the negative side of the equation and Sarah and Isaac are on the positive side. It's a symbolic illustration of the ongoing battle between grace and works. Now, this was a really important argument for Paul to put forth because by the first century, lots of people in Judaism thought that they were accepted by God merely through biology, I'm related to Abraham, or through the keeping of the Old Testament ceremonial law. I keep the Sabbath, I tithe, I offer sacrifices, and because of that, God accepts me. Because of that, God loves me. And this mentality was creeping into the infant Galatian church. You had all these new Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who were beginning to think, man, the way that we can be approved by God is by becoming Jewish and by connecting ourselves to Judaism. And I think that this thought can creep into our minds as well. Maybe my morality is what approves me before God. Uh, maybe my personal righteousness will approve me before God. Maybe it's my views, having the correct views that will approve me before God. And Paul was certainly not the first person in the New Testament to have to deal with this particular issue. Uh, when John the Baptist was ministering, uh, he told the crowds, he said, don't say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. 
Don't dismiss me by saying that to yourselves. He says, because God could raise up children from Abraham from these stones. And then you might remember Jesus. In a passage in John chapter 7, he had a long debate with the religious leaders about what they were doing and what they were thinking. And he told them that even though they were biological offspring of Abraham, they weren't acting like Abraham, but were instead, and this is very incendiary from Jesus, he said, you're acting like your father, the devil. So very straightforward. John and Jesus and Paul, they were in agreement that God's blessing or God's uh, approval does not come through mere biology or through keeping the legal code delivered to Abraham's descendants far after his death. It comes by faith and God's gracious promise. Not works, but faith. Not law, but grace. Not effort, but promise. And that's what Paul is using this story of Hagar and Sarah or Ishmael and Isaac to illustrate. I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I like to read a ton about the different passages that I'm going to teach you in the Bible. And in every single commentary or book that I read on this passage, uh, the scholars, there's always a paragraph in every single one of their books that says, this is the hardest passage in all of Galatians to understand. And they say, it might be the hardest passage in all of the New Testament to understand. So I hate reading paragraphs like that because it freaks me out about like what's going to happen on Sunday. Am I just going to talk for 40 minutes and everyone's going to be like, I have no idea what that was about. Um, but I think the reason for it is because it's, it's very Old Testament. He, he's speaking an allegory and all of that. But, but I hope to make it plain to you today. In the illustration that Paul builds off of this real Old Testament story, uh, he presents four contrasts. Uh, he says, Ishmael was born, in verse 22, as a slave, but Isaac was born free. This is his way of pointing out that if you're given to legalism, you're enslaved, but if you receive the gospel, you're free before God. A second contrast is found in verse 23. He said that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. It was human effort, human energy, that would produce what they thought would be God's blessing. But Isaac was born through God's promise. God just said it would occur and it happened. And when you believe in the gospel, it's because God has been working in your life. He is the doer. But when you're trying to be approved by God based on works, it is all you. It's your human effort. Uh, in the story, he also compares Hagar with, to Mount Sinai. He says that Hagar is illustrative of the old covenant, but that Sarah is illustrative of the new covenant, Mount Calvary. So when you believe in the gospel, you're transferred from being approved by God by your works, which is impossible, we've learned in Galatians, transferred into being approved by God based on the precious blood of Jesus. And then lastly, and this might be one of the more confusing ones, Paul said that Hagar is present-day Jerusalem, not right-now Jerusalem, although there are some similarities, but present-day in the first century, where it was filled with people who thought, because we're Jewish, because we're keeping the law, because we're related to Abraham biologically, we are approved by God. And, and Paul says the very straightforward thing of saying, no, they're actually like Hagar, uh, who is present-day Jerusalem, but those who believe in Jesus, they're like Sarah, and Sarah is Jerusalem from above, he says. 
Now, this isn't his, he's not saying Jerusalem tomorrow or in the future, but he's saying right now there's another kingdom, there's another city of God, and when you believe in Jesus, you become a citizen of that kingdom. You're still a citizen here on earth, but you're also a citizen of that new kingdom of God, and you can live out that new kingdom ethic here on earth. So all of that to say, those are the contrasts that Paul is building. That's the illustration that Paul is using. And, and I think what I want you to know is that Paul and the passage is not, uh, the, the intention isn't to leave you perplexed. You know, Paul thought this would be a super good conclusion to his theological argument. To him, he's like, I can't wait to pull this one out of my back pocket, the Hagar and Sarah analogy. You know, we might be swimming a little bit right now, but Paul was convinced that this was a great way to conclude uh, his theological argument. To Paul, uh, he's saying, by faith in Jesus, you belong to Sarah because you were born into freedom. You are part of Calvary's new covenant, and you are a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem that is and is coming. That's who you are when you simply believe in Jesus and don't add works to try to be approved before God. All right, so that's the analogy. That's the illustration. I hope that you guys are tracking with me. You guys with me? Can I move on to the next thing here? All right, so, so the question that I want to ask to wrap up our time is I want to think about the last half of the verses and ask the question, how does Paul apply that illustration? If that illustration is true, uh, then how does Paul apply it? And I want to give you four ways that Paul applies it based on the verses that follow. Okay, so the first one that I want to show you is, number one, a great way to apply it is, number one, you need to rejoice in spiritual barrenness. You need to rejoice in spiritual barrenness. Let me explain this to you. Uh, first, by reading verse 27, if you guys would look in your Bibles with me or up on the screen. He said, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Okay, now when Paul says it is written and then says these things about a woman who can't have children rejoicing because she will have more offspring than the one who is already producing children, uh, it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1. And in its original context, it is not about Hagar and it is not about Sarah. What it's about in its original context is the people of Israel in their disobedience to God. Isaiah the prophet came along and said, look, you guys have been disobedient for so many years and God's been trying to correct you with prophet after prophet and king after king. Uh, but now it's time for some, some discipline. And so you are gonna be brought into a period of captivity where you're gonna go into exile. You're gonna be removed from the land. But don't worry, instead rejoice because in the midst of your barrenness, God still has a future for you. He's going to bring you back to this place, and he's going to make you more prosperous in the age to come than you've ever been. Now, this actually wasn't fulfilled literally by the people of Israel all the way. They did come back to the land. They did begin to repopulate, and I do think one day we will see it literally fulfilled but it became spiritually fulfilled when Jesus arrived in the first century as a Jewish man, the Jewish Messiah, 
And then the message of Jesus began to go throughout all the world. And now for the last 2,000 years, we've had billions of people who have proclaimed Christ as their Lord and Savior. In other words, from the ashes of Judaism, from the barrenness of Judaism, God did an incredible work in reaching and saving thousands, millions, and billions of people with the love and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul seems to be saying is, we can rejoice in our barrenness before God, our spiritual depravity, because Well, it's not the end of the story. God prospers those who are spiritually poor and come to him in simple faith. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is really good news. You see, the legalists in Galatia, they thought that they had good works. They thought they had morals. They thought they had rule keeping that could help them stand approved before God. But the gospel enables us to rejoice that we come to God with nothing. Like spiritual paupers, we come to God with nothing in our hands to please him. Despite this, God becomes completely and totally satisfied and overjoyed by us because of the precious blood of his son being placed upon us. You know how the Bible describes us coming to God? It says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Doesn't that sound similar to what Paul said about Abraham and Sarah? Their bodies as good as dead, our spiritual vitality before God as good as dead, yet because of God, because of his grace, we can know him and love him. And I I hope that you can bring this home into your heart because When we slip into legalism, we become decimated by our failures because we're trusting them to approve us before God. And eventually, you'll give up in that system. You'll tap out in that system. But when steeped in grace, we're shocked to find that we are loved and accepted by God without any work of our own. Though barren, he loves us, and now fruit can come from our lives. And listen, If that was not the way of the Lord, then only the fertile, to use the analogy, only the fruitful, only the productive, only the strong, only the people who have all their stuff together could be approved by God. But that's not the message of the gospel. We come to God like Sarah came into pregnancy, weak and without anything real to contribute, unproductive, like we were dead. But God is able. And God is looking for the barren so that we, he can bless us. He's looking for those who will rejoice in their barrenness. In the same way that old, the Old Testament, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah all had children, even though they were unable, we were unable to produce righteousness on our own but God has accepted us and made us fruitful. So we've got to remember this. We've got to rejoice in spiritual barrenness before God. I was thinking about this actually this morning um, in that, you know, I was, I was 18 years old when God really broke through in my life and I began to uh, believe the gospel and then Fairly quickly, I began sensing a calling from God, something bigger, like a purpose that he had 
for my life. And in that stage of my life, I was very conscious that I had nothing to offer. All my history, my background, the things I'd been doing, you know, I was just so glad. It was like I was just glad to be there, just glad to be in the building, just glad to be forgiven, cleansed, to have God's grace on my life, to, to have him cleanse me. I was just so thankful for that. But here's the thing. For those of you who have been in Christ for a long time, you've got to be careful as the years tick by to retain that feeling of spiritual barrenness before God. You know, for me, I have to watch out to make sure that, that I'm still humble before the Lord. I, I've, I've heard uh, Malcolm Gladwell talking about that 10,000-hour rule, you know, like 10,000 hours on a subject and you become an expert or something like that. And so in my mind, I'll start racing and thinking, oh, yeah, I put in at least 10,000 hours studying the Bible. And I can start thinking of myself like that, like, well, now, you know, when I was 18, I, did, I had nothing. But now I got something to offer. But that is not the case. I'm still the same knucklehead by the grace of God who God called and chose and put into his kingdom and on his team and in his family. We've got to retain that spirit before the Lord. Think about the life of Moses. You know, Moses, at age 40, thought of himself as the perfect candidate to deliver the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. I mean, think about it. He was a Hebrew. He had been raised, though, by the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt. He was familiar with Egyptian culture. He had access to the Egyptian king. He had the ear of the nobles. And he just assumed, God is going to use me to deliver my fellow countrymen who are brutally enslaved here in Egypt. But God couldn't use him in that state. And so Moses was driven into the wilderness. And for 40 years, on the backside of the wilderness, he was humbled before God, brought to the place that when he saw the bush burning yet not consumed, and God calling him to go deliver the people back in Egypt, at that point, he said things to God like, I'm not the man for the job. I'm not the person who can do this. I, I, I can't. I don't. I'm unable. But that was exactly the spirit that God was looking for, a man who saw his spiritual bankruptcy and whom he could use if he trusted and depended upon the Lord. Okay, second thing I want you to see, though, in Paul's application of this analogy is number two, we should expect a struggle with legalism. We should expect in the Christian life for there to be a constant struggle or battle or tug of war with legalism. Look at what Paul said in verse 28 and 29. He said, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Okay, what Paul is doing with this part of the story or the analogy is he's gearing the Galatians and us up for the inevitable battles that we'll have with legalism. He's preparing them uh, by reminding them of a part of the story that happened when Ishmael, the first son born from Hagar, was a teenager. Uh, he, one day, the Bible says, looked at toddler Isaac and began to mock him. He began to scoff at him. He began to make fun of him. And 
when Sarah saw this, she complained to Abraham. But Paul's point here is that in the same way that Ishmael persecuted, is the word he used, Isaac, legalists will always persecute people who are clinging to God's grace alone by faith alone. In one sense, you could say that with this part of the analogy, Paul is describing uh, tons of church history. A lot of the strongest persecution that the church has ever endured did not come from outside the church, but came from inside the church, from legalists who felt that something needed to be added to the gospel of grace. Grace alone by faith alone is insufficient to these persecutors. And we have to be ready and expect that this struggle between law and grace will come. Ishmael's, in other words, always persecute Isaac's. People who want to be approved by God because they think the right things or they do the right things will always chafe at those who are accepted by God through grace. Just as Cain was angered that God did not accept his sacrifice but accepted the sacrifice of his brother Abel's, legalistic people in the visible church will despise the freedom of those who are steeped in grace. Legalists, in other words, hate grace. And there will always be a legalistic contingent of the visible church that wars against the radical possibilities of grace. Ishmael's, in other words, don't know what to do with Isaac's. And Cain's don't know what to do with Abel's. But listen, this struggle with legalism isn't always going to be with other people. A lot of times it's going to be within the realm of our own hearts. Even within the recesses of our own hearts and souls and minds, doubts and arguments and old habits will surface, telling us that our performance is the thing that gains us God's affection. It's hard for us, in other words, to feel completely free. We constantly battle a pull back into law as a way to be approved by God. And as believers, since we love God, we want to obey God, and so that means we will do some things that look like allegiance to the very law of God. But the struggle happens when we start believing that it's those works that approve us in the eyes and the mind of God. I was reading the other day a brief article about Ginger Duggar, who apparently she's the sixth child of, I don't know, 17, 20 kids that the Duggar family had. They were that kind of social media and TV sensation. She's 29 years old now, and she just explained that now she's a Christian. She loves the Lord. She loves Jesus. She's orthodox in her faith and belief as best as I could tell. But she had to go through a period where she disentangled some of the legalistic concepts that were given to her as a child. At times where she would feel guilty that she didn't want to pray all the time, but sometimes wanted to just go play games with her friends. Or times that she felt guilty when her knees showed beneath her skirt inadvertently. Just different things like that, that she, she realized as a grown woman that these weren't facets of Christianity. They were something that someone along the line had added to Christianity that had began to stumble her in her faith. And she had to go through a process, praise the Lord, of disentangling herself from legalism in order to be able to enjoy the true and the living God, the grace that was and is hers. I think we're often uh, in this battle. I think we're often like an older teenager or college student who is on the cusp of adulthood. Uh, you know, in that stage of life, you're beginning to feel your independence, but you know at the end of the day, you're really not totally independent yet. 
You still need your parents. You still rely on your parents. You can stay out as late as you want, but you know that at any moment they could log into the school website and see what your GPA is at that moment. You know, you, you kind of realize these things. You're in this struggle, this, this battle. I think in a similar way, we, we go through that as Christians. We feel free and loved and accepted by God through Jesus but then we revert back to the parental authority that the law had over us. But Paul's point has been real simple. When you receive Jesus, you receive full adult sonship before God. You're not in adolescence. You're, you've arrived in his sight. You've graduated with honors from the law's authority and are now free to respond and live before God. But all I'm saying here is that we should expect a struggle with legalists, even the legalists within. Okay, number three, uh, a third application of four. We need to, number three, purge anti-gospels. Purge anti-gospels. Uh, notice what he says in verse 30. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit... Uh, with the son of the free woman. Now, like I said earlier, in the Genesis account, when Ishmael mocked Isaac, Sarah complained to Abraham. And God told Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael on their way. Uh, in the story, God blesses them. God takes care of them. God provides for them. And he actually creates a beautiful future for Ishmael. He blesses Ishmael in some powerful ways. But Abraham isn't using this, or excuse me, Paul isn't using the story for that purpose. He's using the story as an illustration of what the Galatian believers needed to do to the legalists in their midst. They had to act like Abraham. They had to cast out the legalism. They had to drive it away. They had to cut it off. And the reason for this is because law-keeping is a way to gain, God, to gain God's approval. It's in direct contrast with the cross of Christ, the whole reason that Jesus came is negated by legalism. So it must be dealt with swiftly. We have to recognize the incompatibility of man-made or even deity-made religion and respond by casting out the legalizers. Now, when Paul used the story this way, it was a fiery thing that he was throwing out there. Because the Judaizers, the legalists, they thought to themselves, we are the ones connected to Sarah. We're the ones connected to Isaac. But here in his story, Paul says, no, you legalists are the ones connected to Hagar. You're the ones connected to Ishmael. And you're the ones who need to be driven out just like Hagar. You need to be thrown out. And what Paul is saying is that believers have to drive out all the anti-gospels that creep into our minds and creep into our churches. When we think our own righteousness approves us before God, we have to cast that out. When we think our own power can deliver us, we have to cast that out. When we think our own wisdom can guide us, that so we don't need to seek the Lord, we must cast out that thought. When we think our own ingenuity can prosper us, we have to cast out the thought. And conversely, when we think that our own shortcomings have disqualified us before God, we have to cast out the thought. When we think God's strength is unavailable to us, we have to cast out the thought. When we think God is looking for perfect people, we have to cast out the thought. We have to drive out the anti-gospels when they come. 
The story of Job is, in the Old Testament, is a great example of the need to cast out anti-gospels. Job began to suffer incredibly. So incredibly that when his three friends arrived, their counsel to him was, look, man, this is so bad. It's obvious you must have done something wrong to bring this upon yourself. If you had performed better, if you had been better, if you had prayed better, if you had been more holy, if you'd been more godly, if you'd done better, then this would not have happened to you. That was the message. It's a total anti-gospel. People suffer, and that's a fact of life. The gospel came to rescue us from all of our suffering one day, uh, but these messengers were putting a law upon Job, and those voices had to be cast out. But I think that same anti-gospel, it sometimes appears in our modern minds as well. You have to find this anti-gospel alive and well when Christians suffer today. We'll think to ourselves or we'll say things to ourselves like, what did I do wrong? What must I do to get out of this? Because I must have done something to get into this. Why am I being punished? These are things that we'll say. These are anti-gospels that we must drive away. The Tower of Babel is another example of an anti-gospel gone wild. The people gathered in Babel in Genesis chapter 11 with a desire of building a structure that reached to the heavens that was void of God, a community that was void of God, had nothing to do with God. Through their own works, without God's grace, without God's power, without God's strength, they thought that they could thrive. Instead of humbly asking God for help and grace, they believed in the anti-gospel of works. So we have to be aware. And one of the ways to be aware is to preach the true gospel to yourself every single day so that you're prepared to notice quickly when a thought that is antithetical to the gospel comes into your mind or into your soul. You have to grow in your ability to detect these anti-gospels more easily. Uh, Recently, a couple of weeks ago, my daughters, my two younger daughters, Uh, came home from high school winter camp. And uh, when they arrived home, I happened to be out in the garage. I have a little home gym there, and I was working out. And I know you guys aren't surprised when I say that I work out. Uh, But um, I, you know, wanted to say hello to them, so I came out. And I, I was not thinking about what I was wearing or anything like that. But when I came out, I realized that one of their friends was there with them, And she definitely noticed what I was wearing while I was working out. I had this snug little t-shirt on and this like bandana do-rag thing and some shorts. But the kicker of all was that since it was cold in the garage, I had leggings on underneath (laughs) my shorts. And, uh, you know, I'm rolling around the house like that all the time, so I'm not even thinking about it. But she just could not stop laughing. She, She goes to the church here. And so she knows Pastor Nate one way, and it was just like, this is a different version of Pastor Nate. So we're all trying to talk about how the camp was, how it was going, and every time she would start sharing, she'd like look at my wife, and then she'd look at my, my daughters, and then she'd look at me, and she'd just start laughing. She just couldn't contain herself. I loved it. I was having a good time with her. But I, I, I think my prayer is that we could come to the same place when anti-gospels come into our minds, into our lives, into our dialogue with other believers, that we could detect them, that we would know something's off, this isn't right, 
and that we would laugh at them, and then that we'd go beyond what she did, and we would just reject them. They've got to be out of here. Okay, last thing. I'll wrap it up, and then we'll take communion. Number four, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. Look at verse 31. He said, so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He's just letting these Galatians know who they are. You guys are connected to Jesus. You're descendants of the child of promise. You're born into freedom when you're born again in Christ. You're connected to the new covenant that was started by Jesus on Mount Calvary. You've got the spirit of God in you, and you're a citizen of this new Jerusalem, this forever kingdom. That's who you are. And what I want to say here today is that remembering who we are, it is literally a life and death situation and issue. What I mean by that is when we remember who we are, we live in who God has called us to be as his people. In places like 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we discover that the church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that we would proclaim his excellencies to the world in which we live. Matthew Harmon said it this way. He said, as believers, a key component of the significance of our lives is that we are living, breathing symbols of the transforming grace of God that has freed us from our slavery to sin, death, the devil, and all the powers of this present evil age. But when we slip into legalism, when we forget who we are, what we begin projecting to the world is not that we're living, breathing symbols of the transforming grace of God, but that through our morality, through our views, through our good works, through our righteousness, we arrived before God. And the second that becomes the message of our lives, we've killed the gospel message, and that's why it's a life or death issue for us to remember who we are. We're children of the free woman, we're children of grace, and we must not forget it. Recently, I was out on an early morning walk, and it was a, just the path I take every single morning, and I noticed down the trail a hat that was lying on the ground. And I, when I saw it, I thought, oh, good, there's that hat that I lost. And so I walked up to it and kind of kicked it a little bit just to make sure. And I realized real quickly, oh, that's not my hat. And so I just kept going along on the trail. And then at one point, I scratched my head and I realized that I was wearing the hat that I thought that I lost. It was right there on my head. And I think this is a great illustration for how it so often is regarding our identity in Christ. We slip into a forgetfulness and we start trying to prove ourselves to God, but the gospel reminds us we are already approved. We are already clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So by God's grace, all this has happened through the work of Christ. We've been brought from barrenness to fruitfulness, slavery to freedom, and from law to grace. So when anti-gospels roll in, let's be a people who reject them. Amen?